You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remso Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics Podcast at secondprintcomics.com. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. When I say Skinwalker Ranch, what comes to mind? Well, probably some of you have never heard of it. And if you have, maybe you're thinking Bigfoot, UFOs, Skinwalkers, ghosts, whatever. You've probably seen it online. You've probably seen it on TV. Well, today we have two guests that are giving you a different look at this incredibly interesting location. You've got photographer and Air Force veteran Chris Bartell and Taras Matla, the Associate Director of the University of Maryland Art Gallery, and we'll be discussing their new exhibit, The Skinwalker Ranch Portfolio. Now, this features the work of Kansas-born photographer Christopher Bartell, Chris, as I mentioned a moment ago, and this online exhibit includes 80 works by Chris. And you'll, you'll learn later, and this just completely shocked me during the interview, they had 1,500 photos to choose from, and they broke it down to 80. And this has all been brought together by the University of Maryland Art Gallery in this series. Um, now, it's, it's arranged into four thematic sections that we'll discuss a little bit more later. Origin, environment, exploration, and vision. Now, I'm not, a, you know, trained in, in the arts or anything like, you know, like, like some people, but it was incredibly interesting and easy and fascinating to learn more about. We're going to jump into that. And what this basically tries to do is this portfolio is going to dignify and elevate the ranch's rich cultural history that, in my personal opinion, gets bogged down by a lot of the sensationalism that you know the internet and TV often does when it comes to certain things. Uh, Bartel's photos acknowledge the earliest Native American inhabitants of the region while simultaneously pay, uh, you know, paying its respects to the time-honored artistic tradition of documenting the American West. Now, I mean, let's completely understand this. The pop culture reputation of Skinwalker Ranch, it, I mean, it precedes its natural beauty and physicality, as few, as, ever, as few have ever actually set foot on the property. Now, the ranch gets its nickname, for those of you that don't know much about it, from the Navajo word Skinwalker, which refers to the malevolent shape-shifting entity which strikes people with all types of fear. I mean, imagine how you would feel if you saw that thing coming at you. Now, the, the Ute tribe, oral histories, personal encounters, and testimonies by local residents, books, TV shows, all attest to some strange stuff going on. Paranormal, extraterrestrial, you name it, somebody has seen or experienced something. And it all has to do with this property. And, uh, you know, you can go online and find out a whole bunch of stuff about it, but this is truly 
a different and authentic experience. Now understand, this exhibit's focus is strictly on the images created by Bartel, regardless of whether or not one accepts or rejects supernatural implications and all this other stuff as these photographs need to be understood. They are data. They are just what they are. But because you know me, we're going to have to get into all of this. I've been blabbering on way too long. I am excited to go ahead and get more into this, the Skinwalker Ranch portfolio. Enough for me. Let's get on to our guests now. Bartel and Taras Matla. Thank you both for taking the time to come on the program tonight. We've been coordinating this for over a month now. And, you know, I, I, I try and make everyone feel special and say that every episode is one I'm really looking forward to. But when, uh, when, when Taras, when you went ahead and contacted me uh, and brought up, you know, the, the exhibit and everything else you were doing, it, it really piqued my interest. Specifically, you know, the facts that the only, the only way I knew about Skinwalker Ranch at all was through what I've seen online and TV. And uh, I don't think that's a great way of getting to understand a location, especially when you go at it just, you know, jumping in from the perspective of, oh, this is a paranormal, this is a supernatural, this is a site with, uh, you know, lots of UFO sightings. Skinwalker Ranch has all those things, but there's got to be more to it. And Chris, uh, you and I were were speaking beforehand, and I I just want to reiterate this. As somebody that's been filming three seasons of a show, you know, going to these historic locations, trying to really look into, you know, the paranormal and all these other factors that cause people to experience things that they can't necessarily explain what I, I love about what I've been able to see uh, in, in terms of the photos and everything that you each provided me is that you actually provided true humanity to this location. You actually took it from the perspective of somebody that has to live there and somebody that has to look at things objectively. And I feel that in our current media and entertainment environment, when it comes to, you know, locations that have a reputation such as Skinwalker Ranch, uh, that human element is often the first thing to get removed. And then it just becomes another attraction. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, just let, let's kind of start from the beginning. I, I'm curious mm-hmm. about this. What came first, the photography or the idea of the exhibit? Uh, the photography, for sure. Um, I, I never thought in a million years I'd have an exhibit, you know, for me, photography is something I've always done since I was in high school. And uh, when I went to the ranch, I realized what a beautiful location. And so I would carry, you know, my personal camera along with the company's camera for, you know, mostly for documentation purposes. But when I saw, you know, an image that spoke to me or that I thought was, you know, gorgeous, I would take a picture of it. And I really just kind of plan to archive it from my own personal use and then maybe tell my kids one day about this cool job that I had and and you know the the property there I felt like there was something historical to document out there as well you know and I wanted to capture that and uh and then I met uh Taras online and he reached out to me and that kind of organically turned into this exhibit which I'm so honored to 
even be a part of. It's so awesome. Which is, I mean, just the fantastic thing about this to Ross, uh, you know, when it comes to Skinwalker Ranch, you might as well say Amityville Horror or some other location. Uh, you know, you're, you're coming at it during a time where we recently had the series uh, over on History Channel. It's been on Ghost Adventures on Travel Channel. There are you know dozens and hundreds, if not thousands, of YouTube videos about it. And you're you're doing this from the perspective of what it, what did somebody who actually had to spend time there see? You didn't treat it as oh, let's go ahead and jump into all these things that you already probably know about it from online. So so what piqued your interest in this, and ultimately what 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 pushed for the idea of turning this into a whole exhibit? Yeah, well, I actually saw Chris's work on Twitter, of all places. Um, you would think that something like that would be more on Instagram, but I something didn't really know. Something positive came out through Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for that. Yes, for sure. Yeah, um, believe it or not, you know. Um, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm very much kind of active on UFO Twitter um, insofar as I have an a pre-existing interest in in UFOs and, and the paranormal and thing. I, I have two relatives who have had uh, different types of experiences. Um, one actually is an abductee, um, which could be a whole other show. Um, and the other one is actually an, an astronomer who actually had a UFO sighting. And so the convergence of both of those experiences um, was kind of the icing on the cake for me, you know, really as of, of, wow, this is kind of real. And why aren't we, you know, uh, uh, bringing these things together in, in, in an interesting kind of way as it happens. And Chris happened to happen upon me um, um, on Twitter. Uh, he was posting these things just random and um, they piqued my interest because uh, they looked really sophisticated. They weren't just your regular um, photograph, you know, that or a selfie that somebody took. These were things um, taken by somebody who had a clear understanding of uh, layout of composition of light of subject matter. I mean, and it had all these things that harken back to me, um, even before all the UFO paranormal stuff, um, uh, photographing the American West, you know, at a time, you know, when, when you had um, these expeditions in, in, in the middle and late 19th century of, you know, exploring uh, the bounty of the United States and, and hiring actually painters and photographers to document that stuff so that they could then bring that stuff back to Washington, D.C. So they could better take inventory in terms of how they would deploy federal resources later down the line to manage lands and to, you know, have relationships with Native Americans and so on and so forth. So for me, uh, it was always art historical in nature. But then, you know, the icing on the cake was really the fact that it was also Skinwalker Ranch, something that people have never really had a chance to see from the inside out, um, aside from, like you mentioned earlier, um, coming across it via TV shows and, and, and other kind of uh, platforms, at which point it kind of gets a little bit more hype rather than kind of um, a moment, like, like a museum moment where you really have time to kind of stare at something and ponder um, deeper thoughts about it. Yeah, and I mean, you, you sent me some of the photographs earlier prior to recording so I can kind of familiarize myself with things. And my, my preconceived notion was, oh, he's got a UFO on there or he's got some, you know, shapeshifter crawling out. So when I looked at the photos, the, the thing that caught me was the fact that they were, and I'm putting this in air quotes, they were normal. 
they were they were simple in the fact that this could really be anywhere but but the photos were done with intention and because i knew of the location as i kept that in the back of my mind it made me realize something that i i kind of discovered about myself when i went on these travels for for my show the witching hour which is people don't really get a feel of a place unless they're actually getting to see the simple moments, the things that show that there is some life here, that there is history here. I like the quote that, you know, today we stand in the rubble of history. And Chris, what you did was you added that element to it that people will just often ignore. I, I myself came into it not thinking about it at all. So after going through it once, I went through it a few more times. And in a way, often – makes me think about the mystery of these places because it's more than just the sensationalism it's more than just the very you know the, the very important questions as to whether or not these things are actually occurring i mean you name a creature or a type of experience or something and it seems like a story is there from someone and that that's why i appreciated about your work it's the fact that it actually made me step back and think what is this place like when the cameras are off Right. You know, and I'm talking specifically about television and stuff like that because that that is the one thing that – I'm not going to say it makes me upset about my show but because I'm not upset about it. But the thing that I wish I could have done more of because we have only so long to show so much and we have to condense 12 hours of filming into a 55-minute program. Mm -hmm. And I try and take photos of behind-the-scenes stuff and put them on my Instagram and stuff about it. I kind of suck at it. But it's like, you know, if you if you don't have that element to it, you're only getting half of the experience. And I feel that when it comes to, you know, Skinwalker Ranch and, and the surrounding land, that, that is often the thing that gets ignored the most. Right. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of history there. And I don't know all the you know, I only know. I don't know. Obviously, I worked there for six years, lived there, operated there. But even I didn't don't know all the answers to the property. I just know from my experiences what I believe is there, you know, and I was able to document some of that with my photography through through those years. You know, I'm really happy. I'm really happy people can uh, see my vision because I really think that being out there for so long, um, you know, helped uh, inspire me in certain ways with creativity, using my creative vision. But also I was able to capture some really historical, what I believe is historical moments of the ranch, like the the, the shot behind Terrace of the storm. You know, there's a whole story about that. And it's just so cool to kind of see these out there now. Now, ha having lived there before this kind of became such a pop culture sensation, mm -hmm. I mean, what, what did you know about it prior to actually going and living there? You know, honestly, back then, you know, 2010, I never even heard of Skinwalker Ranch. Nobody really did. There was maybe a handful of YouTube videos. Uh, that was really about it. You know, maybe a couple online things. Ryan Skinner had his website on there. Um, but I went to the ranch with an open mind. I, I didn't read the book or anything before going out there. I didn't want to have any, you know, ideas in my head before going out there. I wanted to go with an open slate and, and based everything on what I experienced. And so I, very, I knew nothing. And then being a part of the team out there, we were kind of, we didn't get all the intel probably that we should have, which would be normal for a, a team of investigators. You would you think, think that was done intentionally or do you think I, they wanted you to kind of figure things out on your own? I think maybe a little bit of both. Maybe they didn't want to tell us some things because he thought maybe it might, we might steer an investigation, you know, a different way, but also maybe of just being there 
for the first time. And those first experiences are the most important ones. So I don't know. I mean, I still being out there for all that time, I still have questions, you know, about some of the things that went on during my time out there. And that's kind of how I got to Twitter in 2019 was that was that's when I first discovered about Allsap. I was like, what is Allsap? What does that got to do with the, the ranch? You know? And uh, I started talking to some old friends on Bass and they're like, yeah, something doesn't make sense. You know, we were never told about $22 million and, and, and other projects and this and that. Not that we were, we should have been, we should have brought it. There should have been more communication back then. Really, there really should have been a lot more communication back then. Because honestly, it got to a point at Skinwalker Ranch where um, most of us weren't documenting all the things that we're experiencing because it just kind of felt like we would up-channel some stuff and never get any feedback. Can can you give an example? um, Well, specifically, it was the the Native American artifacts I was finding out there. I was documenting on the Daily Report. And I thought this was crucial because for the first time ever, we had physical evidence of of something important, some history. And what I was doing, I was I had a topographical topographical map of the ranch, and every time I found an artifact, I would GPS it with a location on the map, and then I would take people's experiences and see if there's a correlation between artifacts and people's experiences. Maybe there was some type of connection there. I really believe that the ancient native energy is embedded into the natural environment, you know? And when I started doing that, I was told to stop. And I'm like, they said it wasn't important. And I'm like, no, this is extremely important. So I stopped adding on the daily report, but I stopped, I kept on with the documentation myself because I felt it was truly important because there is a foundation there that's that's been ignored from day one, I think, from the Shermans to NIDS to even Bass when I first got on. Nobody was looking for this stuff. Everybody was looking in the sky and I was kind of looking more on the ground. You know, I kind of traded the place like a, um, like a crime scene, you know? And so I was looking for evidence, like physical evidence, you know, and I, I found stuff and um, it was kind of ignored. And I was like, there wasn't really any communication. Why, you know, I, I want to touch on that in a moment, but I want to kind of rewind uh, a little bit to Ross. What were some of the things you knew about the ranch prior to getting to meet Chris. And as you were both, you know, collaborating on this project, what were some of the things that you discovered that you don't think you would have learned elsewhere? Yeah. Well, I knew about the rat. I knew about the ranch, excuse me. Um, probably just as much as, as, um, as Chris, you know, from, from television and, and, you know, in passing, however, what really piqued my interest about the ranch was, uh, um, it's the connection with the, uh, um, the uh, $22 million DOD program or um, the DIA was a sponsor of a program, um, or, you know, in the New York times article, it was um, ATIP, the advanced aerospace threat identification program. Um, and later on um, we found out that there was kind of a, a, there's a little bit of ambiguity about which one was first or where they were parallel or, or, you know, if one was like a, a mother program, then there was another program that came out that, that Chris was referencing called the advanced aerospace weapons systems, uh, program, uh, OSAP. And, um, it was interesting to me to see photos like that because you, here you have somebody who is literally boots on the ground, taking these beautiful artistic shots in, in some cases, in the middle of this, like, very sensitive DIA, you know, sponsored program, unbeknownst to him, you know what I mean? And so 
um, that added a very fun kind of element. Um, now, at the end of the day, these, these are not classified images by any means, but nonetheless, they navigate a very fun and interesting um, line. They, they navigate the traditional art historical line, um, but they also navigate, like, like Chris mentioned, the kind of the archaeological line, you know, where he's documenting um, Native American uh, arrowheads. There are some, you know, um, there's, there's signs of life, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, and, and, you know, cave dwellings and things like that. Um, there's, there's evidence of, of, of a presence there thousands of years before, you know, um, uh, Bigelow got there or, or the Shermans or, or, you know, the DOD. And it's just fun to see, see all that stuff embedded in, in these images in a way where other photography just can't even touch it. Uh, it's, it's very show don't tell which I think is, is, a key, is something that is missing from a lot of photography when it comes to, you know, trying to tell a story of a specific location, primarily when it comes to something like this. And, and this kind of goes for both of you, but I think the, the, the timing of all this is what's really fascinating me because I feel like um, now more than ever before, and this is not a show where we typically talk about this type of stuff, but, you know, more, more people have wanted and reached out you know, in regards to wanting to hear more topics like this. But I feel like now the general populace is more willing to have an open discussion about things such as UFOs, paranormal activity, supernatural phenomenon, more so now than maybe five, even mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And, oh, yeah. and, I, and either of you can jump into this. But, you know, for, for me, what, what really kind of opened my mind to this wasn't even the paranormal stuff because that was still kind of treated amongst, uh, you know, the audience as a pseudoscience. For me, what I think opened it up for a lot of people was what happened with the Tic Tac video with the Navy pilots that went ahead and captured that crazy thing that was, you know, just just boggling their minds. And the Department of the Navy and DOD had to basically say, listen, whatever that thing is, it's it's not man-made. Like nothing that we know of unless it's coming from, you know, a, a a foreign actor that has technology that we can never conceive ourselves or from another planet or whatever. That's not that's not human. That's what we can tell you. And then people were starting to finally open up to it. So what what do you think has actually kind of triggered this? Because now I feel if we want to make an advancement on these topics, now seems to be the time. And with your exhibit, I think it's going to open a lot of people to have these conversations that they wouldn't have felt comfortable with otherwise, because it's, 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 you know, it's conspiracy related. It's crazy talk, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, if I can jump in first, if if that's okay with you, Chris, um, I think we have one person, you know, in particular to, you know, reference and, and, and from my perspective, and if you think um, for, um, putting this on everybody's radar, and that's uh, Mr. Luis Elizondo, um, who was the the former program director of you know A Tip. I thought you were um, about to say Joe Rogan. I'm so. <laughs> oh yeah, no. no. <laughs> um, uh, although I do hope that he hopes hops on. You know, well, it'd be great if he if you yeah. you snagged Mr. Elizondo to interview him, and definitely for Rogan. But yeah. uh, Mr. Elizondo, um, he's the one who kind of ran the program and um, has seen a lot of this evidence. And um, I think the one I'm not going to speak for him, obviously, but, you know, just from interviews and my kind of interpretation of of the situation is um, he got a little perturbed with the bureaucracy in the DOD about, um, you know, seeing all this stuff materialize and not doing the due diligence to at the very least 
integrate this into um, uh, pilot um, training manuals, you know, or, or training materials, because the fact of the matter is our, our equipment is getting better. People are seeing these things all the time now. I mean, we're there, or at the very least, they're recording things. They're, 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 they're coming forward. They're saying, yes, we saw these things. Um, and people are feeling much more comfortable because um, the, the topic has been destigmatized. Um, but there's still, I think, a lot that needs to be done um, in terms of finding out um, how, how much of it is not of this earth and how much of it is, you know, just very seek, secret, either Chinese or Russian tech. Because I suspect that there is a fair share of that going on, too. But there is no question, at least from my perspective, having seen a lot of stuff, um, I'm convinced that this is not of this world, or at least some, some of these things anyway. Yeah. Chris, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty much on the same same page as what you were saying. I think also maybe you know the state the state of human uh, human consciousness might be evolving to a more open idea of the possibilities that are out there. You know, I remember when the twenty two million dollars uh, came out, there was a lot of people that were upset about it, and I was like, you know, you should be thankful that we are spending this kind of money into this type of fringe topics that are being talked about because who else is going to do it? You know, when the funding ran out at um, at the ranch, you know, Bigelow kept kept it going and. He believed in it. And just because the funding stopped at the ranch didn't mean the investigations didn't stop. I was still out there every day looking for stuff, you know, trying to find the, the smoking gun of the ranch or whatever. And um, it was it, that's it's just more of a mainstream topic now. And it has to do also with social media, probably, because, you know, the technological advancements as our society is going, it's, it's easier to tap into things now. So people are starting to, like, you know, dig into topics maybe they weren't used to before and like i said back in 2010 2011 up to 2012 the skinwalker ranch really wasn't a mainstream topic at all you know what, it was just was your, some ranch yeah i mean what what was your mindset prior to this because i mean did you believe in the supernatural did you believe in ufos because to have been planted where you were in terms of security and observation and everything right you know you, you you've got to have those things on your mind at some point yeah, I believe I, before before coming to Bass, I was actually doing paranormal investigating as a hobby for years. I even uh, got the opportunity to investigate the Goldfield Hotel in Nevada oh, wow. with Virginia Ridgeway, the caretaker. She, we had a private tour with her all day. So I had already came to the team with the knowledge of paranormal security and also photography. So I think photography is a pretty important um aspect when you're doing you know these type of investigations so i was pretty open to everything you know my mother um she raised me very spiritual more of a buddhist uh upbringing she my mother was raised on uh, indian reservations her whole life my great grandfather used to build some of the schools and stuff like that back in the day so my mom raised me very open-minded thankfully and so i've always kind of carried that with me my whole life so i was very open to anything going out to the ranch um, Taras, I am just curious, you know, as, as you told your colleagues about what you were doing in terms of just the, the immediate environment, I mean, you're in academia. Um, what, what were some of the responses you got from folks? You know, um, people, people were surprised, but supportive. I have to say, um, there, there was, you know, it, no matter what the subject is in academia, there's always a little bit of pushback because people want to make sure that it fits very 
neatly within you know the the canon of what, whatever it is that they're 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 presenting. And also, this is higher education, so um, things operate here on 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 a, on a very different level, and for good reason. Um, that said, um, there were some people you, you know who who jumped, you know, or like, well, this is paranormal. This is all this stuff, and um, I had to explain to them what they already knew but you know sometimes it's, it's worth repeating that there are many things on the university campus that deals with the paranormal we have degrees in religious studies we have degrees in the classics um, we have degrees in in a whole host of other you know things pertaining to you know um, um, archaeology and anthropology that deals with people's belief structures and cultures and things like that um, whether you believe in in UFOs or the paranormal or not is not an issue. With what is important is um, is this a work of art um, at its core? Um, because that's really what we're trying to present here. We're trying to present a work of art, um, but it happens to have all these other dimensions. But the other dimensions are really superficial because, like I mentioned earlier, there's a whole host of other disciplines here on on this college campus that that deal with paranormal yet they're not trying to shut down <laughs> the classics you know maybe they're trying to shut it down because not a lot of people are enrolling these days into the classics. i love the classics personally but you know my, my point i think still stands that you know because something is paranormal doesn't mean we should not be studying it absolutely and i'm, I'm glad you explained it in that way because i mean for me ha- having done what i do um, you know, it went from kind of a hobby and I'll admit it turned into quite a bit of an obsession. Uh, I, I went at investigating the paranormal from the from the viewpoint of a journalist. I was a freelance journalist at the time. And here I am by day covering rallies and stuff. And by night, I'm getting locked in old meth labs and stuff. And, um, you know, it, it got to the point where when I started putting out videos and vlogs and documentaries as it began to evolve. What I realized was that I, I didn't actually get as much pushback from people as I thought, particularly other journalists for other papers and outlets. They actually liked the way that I did it. But what I do find right now, and I think I see this with everything, but I feel that when it comes to this field specifically, you know, it's not that they're, they have a strong opinion on ghosts or they have a strong opinion on, um, you know, skinwalkers or UFOs. What what they're afraid of is questioning their worldview. And for me, you know, I'm I'm a proud graduate of Liberty University where the jokes write themselves. I, I love that school. But I got a lot of pushback from my fellow alumni because they're like, oh well, you know, you're not putting out a, a, a you know a strict uh, theological argument for these things. And, you know, you're questioning doctrine and they'll ask me things like, do you believe this is demonic or do you believe what you witnessed was a, was a full on apparition, all these other things. And the, and the answers that bug them the most are the ones where I say, I don't know where I say, I don't know what I saw. I, I, I know, well, I know what I saw, but I don't know what it was, or I experienced this and I don't know what caused it because I think that is the one thing that in this day and age, I think the online environment makes it worse to say, I don't know, doesn't mean I don't care about the answer that is in and of itself an answer. And with that, you know, comes the pursuit of wanting to explore more of this stuff, because how are we ever supposed to know more about ourselves and more about the world around us 
unless we ask the hard questions and then do the things that people aren't willing to do. And, and for you to do this this gallery and this exhibit this way is, I think, one of the most creative mediums in terms of like the paranormal community specifically. It's probably one of the more important because you're reminding people that this is a place not just where things happen but where people live. People lived here before here. And history didn't just start when it showed up online or showed up on TV. People have been here for thousands of years, and there's a history here. And if you want to understand it, it's going to take more than five minutes on Wikipedia. Right. And also, I might add, it was kind of awkward for me coming from the Nevada test site where I had acute clearance. You know, you you go through extensive psyche psyche valves. You know, you wouldn't talk about paranormal or UFO stuff on a psyche valve when you have a clearance like that. They would pull your clearance right away. And now I you know, rolled into this job with Bigelow Aerospace with Bass. And it was quite the opposite. They wanted me to report, you know, or they not wanted me, but I was able to talk freely about what I was seeing. And with no, like, but in the back of my mind, I was still worried about losing a clearance, you know? So there were some things I didn't record. I would just keep it as my own personal, you know, documentation. I kept a little journal to myself because I, I, you know, I was afraid that maybe one day I, I was kind of looking past uh, Bigelow Aerospace, like what I was going to do next. And I didn't want to have my clearance somehow jeopardized that way. So it was kind of a, a night and day difference for me coming from one side of the house to the other side of the house. How, how did it feel like on an emotional level? Because, you know, as you mentioned, you kept a, a diary of the things that you were witnessing, the things that you probably could tell others. I mean, did it feel freeing? Did it feel like you, you felt you were being trapped? Because in an environment like that, I'd probably be thinking, you know, one extreme or the other. One, I can get as freaky as needed. And two, this is, you know, what, you know, what if it's like the Truman Show? What, mm-hmm. what, if, the, what if I'm the experiment? Yeah, it was it was a sensory overload at times, you know, um, especially that first year alone or the first year out there, you know, trying to get adjusted to the environment. You know, for me, I was born and raised in Kansas. So it, going back into a country environment wasn't that big of a deal. But there were other guys on the team that were born and raised in, let's say, L.A. And it was very difficult for them to adjust, uh, you know, being out there on, on, on foot patrolling and stuff like that. And um so there was times where the ranch felt like you were a prisoner almost. And there was other times where I didn't want to even leave. You know, I felt like I had such incredible experiences or just enjoyed my time out there. The only negative factor for me at the time was I wish my family was there. You know, I wish my wife and kids were there with me to see some of these beautiful images I was seeing. You know, most of my shots were taken off the back deck of Homestead One, and that's where, you know, the sun was going down, and there were some so many beautiful sunsets. And I used to sit out there, and I'd be like, I wish somebody else was out here to experience what I'm seeing, you know. So there was times where, yeah, you know, you felt like you're a prisoner because you're kind of locked in. And there was also times where there was a high tempo of people trying to get onto the property, and you're out there, you know, patrolling 24-7 by yourself. It got exhausting after a while. And by the time you got home, you were just mentally and physically exhausted. But like I said before, there was other times where I didn't want to leave. I was having – I was in the moment, I guess the best way to put it. Yeah, so so two questions about that. One, um, you know, did, did you tell your family what you were doing? Uh, I told my – my wife has been with me for – since the Air Force test site. So she's kind of – She's, I've told her, I told my father and mother only because my mother has a Native American background. And sometimes I would ask her questions about some of my experiences that I was experiencing on the ranch. And she would say, oh, try this method. She, she recommended I catch a fish at the, at the stream, at the southern 
tree line and bring it back as like an offering. And I did that. And I'm not sure. I mean, maybe a stimulated activity. I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't have like any type of crazy responses after that, but I thought it was good effort to try that and to look at it at, at that, at that aspect of a more of a natural um um, approach to the property. I think that's key to understand that location is really immersing, immersing yourself in that environment as much as possible. And that means going out in you know, bad weather, good weather, night and day, and going to areas that you don't feel comfortable with. But, you, you know, if you want to figure out what's going on out there, you got to kind of break some rules and push yourself past the boundaries, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I mean, speaking of breaking the rules, this was really piqued my interest. Who, who were the type of people trying to get on? And did they even know they were getting on? Uh, there was, there's there oddly enough, there's a, there was a big local element there that was pretty, that would come, not actually, not, I don't want to say the actual locals. It was mostly people from like Salt Lake or Provo or maybe Vernal that would come out there and goof around and so, try to so get they, on the property. So they came to see the strange stuff, basically. Right. They came to see this. And you'd be surprised, like, there was a time where there was a couple from California that came to the gate and I talked to them briefly. And there was another time people from Canada came down and you got to imagine these people travel all this way to come to the ranch. They want to see something, you know, obviously they're, they're invested now into this idea of the ranch and they show up. And the first thing they see is an old cattle guard. And then, you know, maybe me just standing there <laughs> and they're like, really, this is it. And I'm like, well, you know, the whole basin's got activity. It's not just specifically at this location. This is this location is the most has the most um, attention, but the whole basin's got history. You know, and uh, I was able to talk to people, and, and you know, I wasn't the type of guard to like you need to go away and shoo off. You know, I would talk and try to gather more intel of the local area. Maybe there was areas out there that I might want to go investigate that might lead to a different path to understanding what was going on out there. So I wasn't type of uh, trying to shoot people away unless they came to the gate aggressive or, and that happened a couple of times. People would show up drunk and want to fight. It, there was all kinds of stuff like that would happen, you know, and you just never knew, you know, what was going to happen. So to Ross, I mean, for, for you, what were you thinking as more attention over the years, you know, got aimed towards Skinwalker Ranch and particularly with what you're trying to do, because one of my biggest worries is, you know, I, I want to highlight areas that are of historical significance that often don't get the attention I feel that they should. And sometimes they're places that are private residents. Other times they're, you know, restaurants, hotels, stuff like that, where they where they want the attention. But, you know, sometimes there is a part of me that worries, you know, what if this is bringing the wrong type of attention? What if this brings the wrong type of people who would do, you know, certain locations, you know, either the physical property or the reputation harm? Did, did you have any of those fears as you were putting this together? You know, I was really hoping with this project to um, help Chris realize his vision. Um, he's, you, you know, to give you some background, he's, he's, a, he's a wonderful photographer. He's been photographing for, for well over 20 years, had the interest since, since high school, um, and has different types of series of different things like Las Vegas and, you know, his native Kansas and so on and so forth. Um, but this was a wonderful project to stumble upon because um, it really humanizes Skinwalker Ranch, like, like we mentioned earlier, in a way where um, you almost don't want to go and disturb it. You know what I mean? Like in, in some cases, it's, it's, it's beautiful and you do want to see what does it feel like to put my hand in the stream? What would it be like to sit in that creepy lawn chair? There, there are all these elements that come up when you're looking at those things. But at the same time, 
you know, looking at the image sometimes is enough. And um, th- that's the beauty of, of, of Chris's work, because um, as I mentioned earlier, it harkens back to these, these you know, iconic photographers like uh, um, Carlton Watkins or Ansel Adams, um, all people who, who went to these types of um, uh, natural sites, natural park, like I'll give you an example, like Half Dome in, in Yosemite, which has been photographed numerous times, you know, by different artists. And it makes you want to go there. But also, you know, some people, it's not their cup of tea to want to go there. But just viewing that image kind of brings them in. And that's enough. You know what I mean? And, and that, 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 that's the beauty of, of, of Chris's work is I think um, it does, um, it does justice to the site in the sense where it, it lets things remain where they are, doesn't entice people to want to go too crazy like a TV show would hype you up. Um, it's just something that that you can just meditate or, or, or contemplate stuff over. So, so it's less about the specific location, you know, specifically like what you're specifically seeing in the photo. And it's more about where your imagination takes you. That's right. Okay. That's right. So my uh, humanities I mean, one hundred one paid off. Yeah, like one one <laughs> of the yeah, like one one of those one of the images um, that's in the show is is this um, random storm that rolled in and just the way the clouds opened up and just rain started pouring. But is but, that the one it, behind you? That's the one that's behind okay. me. Yeah, but but it had not gotten to Homestead Ran or um, Homestead One where. Um, Chris actually took the shot from yet. And so it's like, you're just seeing these, this, this storm rolling in and just, you're, you're seeing nature on, on display in a way where um, it, it, it's almost hard to close your eyes and imagine something unless you're, you're presented with, with an image like this. There's, there's so breathtaking. So yeah, Chris, can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Yeah. Ironic. I was actually at Homestead two, just doing my normal, you know, walk about the property you know, I would walk, I would hike all day long, pretty much just, that's just something I did, but I was at Homestead too. And I noticed that it was storm was coming. And in Utah, those storms come pretty quick sometimes. So I knew I had a, about a 15 minute window to get back to Homestead one to get some good shelter. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to be caught in the middle of it. But I remember as I'm walking, basically jogging to Homestead one, I'd see the storm rolling over the, the Mesa. And I'm like, Holy cow, this thing is just, wicked you know and i almost felt like a mothership like alien mothership was flying over the property oh i'd just be thinking like oh shit it's time to get in some cover (laughs) yeah and by the time i got to homestead homestead one i got to the back deck and it was just there and i was like holy cow this is just unbelievable the storm and i i fired off i don't know maybe 30 30 pictures of it and then i just sat the camera down i just observed it for over an hour as it rolled through and it just blew me away the power of this storm. And then it was gone. So, so one question I have, and uh, this was probably one of my favorite uh, parts of it, but like, you know, when, as I mentioned, I had certain preconceived notions about what I was expecting to see before I actually looked at the photos. I was thinking of beasts. I wasn't thinking of dogs. You took a ton of photos of the two dogs. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, the dogs were, I mean, basically you're only back back up out there, you know, and uh, you really got to be attached to the dogs because they were an incredible biosensor. 
um, to the property. Every time they alerted, I would alert. And every time they had their guard down, I kind of knew, okay, it's there's nothing really going on. So I can maybe just observe the area more on a, on a normal standpoint. And the dogs were, I mean, everywhere you would go, they would, they would come with you pretty much. And you became so bonded to these dogs, you know, they became like family. And so leaving every two weeks, whatever, it was kind of like a little heartbreak, like, okay, I'll see you in, in a couple of weeks. And I'd come back and they'd be excited. And then it, we'd be out patrolling. And like I said, they're, they're, they saved my, my tail a couple of times, you know, just how they acted. And um, you got to pick up on them very well, like their, their uh, habits and stuff. And uh, yeah, so I photographed them a lot because they're always right there. And I thought they were just great dogs, you know. And if I can just add on that, or add to that, Remzo, um, one of the, the the great appeals, you know, for me anyway, of, of of this portfolio was his treatment of the dogs because the jo- the dogs, as he mentioned, were were a tremendous help. They they were not just his backup, but really became kind of his his colleagues and friends. And so when you look at the photos of of you know the the dogs kind of resting with each other and and you know kind of out on patrol and stuff, um, they're like one of the crew you know, in many ways. And he, he, he treat, he photographs them in, in, in the kind of um, portraitist kind of style, you know, where, where the personalities of each of the dog kind of comes out in terms of what, what, what they're interested in, you, you know, and, and it's, it, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing to see where you have not just Skinwalker Ranch, um, the environment, but also Skinwalker Ranch being, um, occupied by Chris and, and, and his, his trusted yeah. company. And also the dogs were actually the first ones who um, showed me an artifact. I was at the Eastern Valley um, taking a break and I was feeding the dogs. There was a, like a stone table out there, a natural forming table. And I would have lunch there, you know, in the daytime. And I was eating a peanut butter jelly sandwich and I was, you know, giving some of the dogs and giving them some water because it was pretty hot out. And I had my bag sitting next to me and Ruka was kind of sniffing around by my bag. And I thought she was trying to get something. And I looked down and next to my bag was this perfect granite arrowhead. And I was like, whoa. And I picked that up and it was like, like a switch turned on. Like everything just changed. As soon as I picked that arrowhead up, my whole consciousness, everything switched. But she was actually the first one to kind of alert, alert, got my attention, I guess, you know, and uh, then the, the whole game changed from that moment on. And that was like in 2000, late 2000 or around 2011. You see, that's one of those moments where you really have to question, you know, is this just happenstance or was there a higher meaning? And I'm not right. I'm not leaning one way or another on that. It could be either. But but the question is there. And, mm-hmm. you know, to, to go back to, um, you know, what, what was mentioned earlier, what, what I appreciate about the dogs and, you know, I'm not saying this about, you know, photographers on Instagram, but I do think that for everybody who becomes an amateur photographer, the Instagramification of certain photos is sometimes distorted why we take photos of things. And what I appreciate about your photos of the dogs is that, you know, when I thought of Skinwalker Ranch prior to this, I'm thinking storm clouds, creepy noises, freaky stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And here you have these dogs who are just, you know, they're, they're living their life. They're having mm-hmm. a good time. They're curious. They're, they're reaching into a lot of those very basic emotions and curiosities that we have that I think get distorted when we come into things with, you know, uh, an idea of already set of how things are going to be. So to see that, you know, it didn't just provide that, that, that human experience that we, we've been touching on repeatedly, but it also just reminds, reminded me just watching it for probably like five minutes just staring at a couple of them was, you know, d- dive into the basics. Why am I curious? What is that? What is the simple beauty? Yeah, the dogs were, I mean, a huge indicator for a lot of reasons. And I would use them obviously to pick up on things. And, you know, when it came to the artifacts and stuff, I felt like sometimes I was being shown, like you were saying before, like, is it coincidence that, you know, I just found these things or was was somebody something leading me to find these things, you know? And over time, it kind of felt like there was something, uh, a presence there showing me this is the history, document this, this is important. I would not not hear those voices, but in my mind, I would think this is something important I need to document. And, and so, yeah. Okay. No, I mean, a, a, as an investigator, you know, I, I really want to hear your opinion on this. It's like that that sixth sense we all have. Mm-hmm. What has led me to a lot of amazing discoveries and has also led me to a lot of dead ends was following that intuition that I, I can't explain sometimes. Right. You know, how, how did how did you adapt and, and kind of use that in certain cases? Because I think it's that part of us where we're like, do I trust my own judgment? Do I right. go on the sleep of faith or do I stick with, well, I have to do it as objectively as possible because at the end of the day, if I can't give somebody something concrete, they're going to think I'm a crazy person. Right. And after, after a while, you really got to trust your gut instinct out there. There was times I would go out at night, you know, and I would start walking towards Homestead 2, Homestead 3 area. And I would get about halfway to Homestead 2 and I would feel like this dark, like don't go like something was saying, do not go any further. And I, I would look at the dogs and the dogs kind of seemed kind of nervous. And I would take that cue as like, okay, I'm not going to go over here this time. I'll come back later. Maybe there'll be a different feeling. And uh, you really had to listen to your gut instinct a lot out there because honestly, by week two, sometimes your imagination is getting the best of you. You start getting a little stir crazy. You're getting a little cabin fever. You know, you've been out over and over and over again. You're kind of wanting an experience to happen so you can document it. But the number one thing I can say that happens at the ranch is that things always happen when you least expect it. When your guard is down, when you're not expecting something, that's when things usually happen. And it'd be, it happened in Homestead 1, you know, Homestead 2, just on a normal patrol, whatever, when you have your guard down. And, uh, but you had to really kind of tune into your, I guess, you know, your sixth sense out there. I guess it was a good battleground to, to, to hone those skills in, you know, because you're kind of forced into environment. You're kind of baptized by fire to, you know, you're, you know, part of my role out there was not just, um, security, obviously, but also the investigating and everything else. But primarily also security was the, the number one standpoint. I had to protect the property. So I had to push myself a little bit further to make sure areas were secure on the property. You know, there's, there's certain areas on the property that are easy access points. And if, and if I'm not up there checking them, somebody's going to come on the property, maybe get hurt, uh, maybe vandalize something. You know, that's that was the biggest concern out there. Taras, I, I am just curious you know, the, the focus of this exhibit is not, you know, paranormal activity, but hypothetically, 
if let's say Chris had caught something that's just absolutely insane, he captures a, a live skinwalker, a UFO, would you have put that in the exhibit or do you think it would have taken away from what you were trying to capture? It depends on the context. Um, what we're doing here is um, uh, Chris actually was, was kind of to donate his entire Skinwalker Ranch series, which is about 1500 digital objects. So you can imagine trying to just, you know, go through that and make odds, odds and ends wow. of, of that. Um, so for this show to make it more palatable for the public, uh, Chris and I narrowed it down to 80 images that we call the Skinwalker Ranch portfolio. You went from 15, I'm sorry, you said 1,500? Yes. <laughs> you but went we from will, 1,500 to 50? No, to 80. To 80. 1,500 to 80? Yes. No easy task, of course, but, you know, that's not Damn. uncommon. It, it's not uncommon in, in museums when you have, you know, su- such a bounty of, 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 of a lot of material to work with. Um, you have to make some some decisions, and so um, what I decided to do is kind of organize the show in, in kind of four sections. And these sections will stay true, not just to the exhibition, but also they'll stay true to the entire archive. Oh, and- so so let's let's pause there real fast. Because yes. This is what helped me kind of add more context. Of what, what are the different stages? The different sections are um, number one, it's called origin and origin really deals with Chris's interest in um, Native American history and Native American culture at Skinwalker Ranch as he's going through and documenting a whole host of different um, um, uh, spaces and artifacts that harken back, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years to the the native inhabitants of of Skinwalker Ranch. Number two is uh, environment. And environment really just deals with Chris's kind of interest in Skinwalker Ranch as kind of an ecosystem, place where flora and fauna flourish, where you find signs of life, you know, everything from like snakes to birds, you know, it's kind of a botanical uh, feel to it. Um, And then number three is exploration, where we kind of really drill down to um, the photographs that that um, Chris is kind of documenting in many ways, kind of formally on behalf of his, his uh, responsibility to bass, you know, where, you know, he's um, the, the canine prints, for example, that, you know, that you'll, you'll, you'll see those in, in the exhibition where he, he and another officer stumbled upon humongous canine prints. I mean, these, these things are, are um, he can explain it better, you know, after, after I go through all this section. Yeah. I, I'll um, ask but, about that because looking at that, it was one of those things where I'm looking at it and I was kind of thinking like, what am I looking at? You, you, we'll we'll get to that. Cause there's a very good story um, attached to that, but, but basically exploration. So we deal a little bit with NIDS. We deal with OSAP, ATIP, you know, the DIA's sponsorship and things like that. Just in a very superficial sense. We don't want to get too deep into it because then, you know, people think you're overly hyping or overly politicizing, and we're not trying to do that. We're we're simply stating that these um, governmental bureaucracies had a part in in the story of Skinwalker Ranch, and that uh, exploration and and and, and research is, is is an important component over the last you know fifty years or so. And then the last section is vision, and vision is something that that Chris references again and again. It's really kind of how how he himself kind of interprets the space, how he has stated again that he made a point of really trying to immerse himself into the space so that he can really tap into whatever it was going on there and try to reconcile his feelings toward it 
and also um, visually, you know, try to document some stuff or talk, document what he was feeling through the camera lens. So, Chris, I'll ask you about the prints in a second. But before we do that, to Ross, was there – okay, since you told me 1,500, now that's that's the only thing going through my mind. <laughs> Is there anything that did not make it into the final exhibit that you wish was added? Oh gosh, that, that, that is a terrific, um, uh, uh, question. Um, yes. And you know, it, it probably does deal a lot with, with the canine prints. You know, I, I had to make a, a selection based on really telling the story of Chris and his experience there. So you'll see a lot of macro and micro perspectives. You'll see obviously the landscape, then you'll see like little artifacts. You'll even see a photo of his sidearm because we really do want to remind people that, while, you know, Skinwalker Ranch is a beautiful place, you know, you're, you're surrounded by greenery, by desert, all this other stuff. It's also dangerous. It's a very dangerous place. And things can get very, very real. And so, you know, just having that tight shop of, of his uh, um, Glock is, is a stark reminder to that. But, yeah, definitely there, there's, a, there's more photos of that night where they came across those, those, those footprints. And... Um, I, I could make a whole exhibition just based on how, how many images we have of, you know, kind of the dogs reacting to it. You know, I mean, um, I grew up with dogs at home, so I know when they're spooked. And those photos showed that those dogs seem like they they picked up on something that that <laughs> made them very uncomfortable and they were yeah. alerting the the officers that night. So maybe that's a good way of segueing into it. Yeah, I mean, Chris, when I, when I looked at it, I, I, I think one of the things for me was I was trying to understand the scale. Of it. Mm-hmm. Can, can you kind of get more into that story of, you know, what, why, why this, why the prints stuck out, stuck out to you and what, you know, what, what was kind of behind the scenes of that? Yeah, that was a pretty wild experience. That was actually my second week in October of 2010 of being on the property. And the first week prior to this event, nothing even happened on the property. Like I was expecting a lot of things to happen. The guy I was with was like, Oh, you know, this could happen, you know, and it was nothing. And I was kind of ready to chalk the place off as like just another ranch, really. And then this other officer came up and we he actually went on a run the day after. Like one of us would normally do like a daily run. And then the other guy would do the report, whatever, and take turns. And he came back and he goes, hey, I think I found some some pretty bizarre prints. I'm like, really, let's go out and look. So we went out and it had a, kind of just lightly rained that day. And we go up this mesa and we see these pretty good-sized wolf print or large canine prints, I'll say that. But what made it bizarre was the fact that the, the prints went from four feet to two feet with like a three-foot stride. And in one of those images, it shows a ruler in like a three-foot stride of this animal walking on two feet. And in the picture, it also shows our dog prints in comparison. So I took that picture. Obviously, I was documenting the picture that that incident with the other camera as much as possible, but I still took a couple of my own pictures just because it was so bizarre, you know? And um, so me and the officer were like, you know, what are we dealing with out here? You know, we, we taught, we con- contacted our boss and let them know what was going on and their advice is, you know, be careful. So in our mind, how, 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 do, how do you, how do you explain that? I know that's where it gets kind of weird. It's like, you know, for the first time ever, you're, now it's okay to talk about these things. I'm seeing these giant prints. So we had the mindset like, 
okay, we're going to catch this thing. <laughs> and as crazy as it sounds, but you kind of, you know, you're out there with, you know, my partner, he's a, he's a veteran as well. And he was like all about it. So we went out that night to look for this animal and we had the dogs with us and we noticed the whole night, the dogs were super clinging to us the whole night. I mean, they didn't leave our side. We knew something was up. And so we went around the whole properties, you know, lighting little bonfires, trying to draw whatever it was in on us to, to get a capture of it, to document it, whatever. And uh, we were at Homestead, too, and it started raining a little bit. And we're like, OK, it's about three o'clock in the morning. We're going to hike back to Homestead 1, which is about maybe a quarter mile away. So as we're walking back, we start backtracking our tracks that night and we find those prints behind our prints. So the whole night it was tracking us and, and none of the dogs picked up on it. So now it got very real, like, okay, gun, guns are out, white lights on. There's no more tactical advantage at this point. We need to get back to Homestead one probably quick as possible because now it's gotten pretty serious. Something's falling, something's falling us. And anyways, we were walking down this uh, old farmstead road and we get around this curb and there's a ditch line that runs through the property. And I was probably about 20, 30 feet ahead of my partner. And he said, stop, I heard something. I hear something. And I turn around and at the same time I'm turning around, it was a full moon night and the cloud, there was cloud coverage and the clouds went over the moon and the whole place it felt like the vibration dropped, like the energy dropped. Like you felt like you're walking through water. It got really weird. I don't know how, to, how else to explain it really. And I remember walking back to him and out of the ditch, we hear this guttural, deep howl, growl, like nothing I've ever heard before. And this animal jumped out of the ditch and I can see it because it was still a full moonlight. And um, it was about the size of a donkey black canine hit the road traveled west the dogs chased it instinctively me and the other officer chased it and it was like i blinked and it was gone so we're like what was that and the dogs stopped and looked at us like what was that and we're like I, i'm looking at the dogs like what was that you know <laughs> so we went back to you know homestead one did the report i think i was i think in the initial report i put in there that i even I, that i didn't see the animal because i was really kind of worried about losing a clearance really i was worried about if i put this down on paper man that I you saw, won't believe what i saw yeah, yeah, i really thought I that i really thought that if i put this down on paper they're gonna think i'm crazy and i'm gonna lose my job i really thought that so i don't think i in the initial report i put that i saw it but i, I did see it and so that happened and then what's crazy is about five years later you know it's like 2015 now i'm out in the property by myself I'm at the East Gate in a lawn chair with the dogs hanging out, waiting for cars to come by or whatever. I'm kind of messing on my phone, goofing around. You can see people coming from miles away. And behind me, my back is faced to the to the southern to the eastern mesa. And behind me, I hear that same guttural howl growl. And I come off my chair, gun out, white light, like at one motion. And I can see something dart into the bushes. The dogs chased it. And then I went and I couldn't find any prints or nothing. But something was something was like letting me know, like, hey, I'm still here watching. And it was so weird. 
But once again, it happened when I least expected. You know, here I am at the East Gate. You know, it's 2015. I'm pretty used to the property. I'm not scared anymore. I'm taking naps on the Mesa at night, you know, star watching. I'm not really fearful at all. But something was letting me know that, hey, I'm still here. And it got my attention. And that's why I always kind of show respect to the property. Like, well, there's something else going on out here. That's why I would take sage with me home. I would take some of the local sage that grows there with me and cleanse myself or, you know, just because yeah, kids at home, my wife, I don't want to bring anything else, you know, that the energy that attaches to. I really believe that the ancient native energy that's out there attaches the people and then follows you home and then presents itself as like a warning system. Like, Hey, you trespass on my property. Now I trespass on yours. You know, that's how I take the hitchhiker effect. That's how I view it. Oh, dude, my, my house becomes fortified, not to get on a tangent. We're talking mm-hmm. sage, blood oh, yeah. salt, holy water. Yeah. Like yep. we go the whole nine yards. Absolutely. We don't mess around. Yeah. And that's and the ranch. Way- the ranch is much bigger than a TV show or a, a, a documentary or a book. It's It's real. It's real out there. And it really should be shown proper respect and really – I mean, I said this before to somebody that is there's really no purpose for us really being out there. I really don't I really don't feel like it was because I mean, as far as myself, I, I went through a lot of growing experiences and evolved as a different person going through that. But as far as far as finding the big smoking gun out there, there's so many layers to that property. And also you gotta understand during my time, we didn't have all the fancy equipment and stuff like that that the guys have now. I wish I had a quarter of that when I was up there you know, with the camera systems and all the, 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 the sensors and stuff that would have been tremendously helpful, but I didn't have that. And it was just more of an organic research, which I think is important to us. Oh yes. Um, what, what I was going to say is there's, there's a wonderful book um, called the hunt for the skinwalker authored by um, investigative journalist, George Knapp and uh, Dr. Colin Keller, who actually was uh, uh, Chris's boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was written back in the early 2000s. I want to say it was 2003 or so, somewhere around there. And it's wonderful. It's, it's, I think it's the best book on Skinwalker Ranch because it really um, uh, tells the story of, of, you know, early Native Americans and then also, you know, how, how it transferred ownership and the weird stories. But one of the, one of the first stories in that book is called Wolf. And it deals effectively with what it is that Chris is explaining um, on this podcast. And the exciting thing when Chris sent me the thumb drive with all this material and when he was telling me and I had been interviewing him for, for over a year for, for this project was uh, um, when he told me that basically what's in that chapter, the wolf is what he documented with the wolf prints effectively. Yeah. I was just blown away just by that, you know, it, it was exciting. And that, that took the project to another dimension because here we were dealing with a photographer with a fine artist, but we're also now dealing in the realm of data. And that's also what's exciting about this project is we'll have the show up, you know, that's, you know, 80 images kind of telling the story of the, the broader archive of 1500. However, <laughs> our, 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 our ultimate goal is to have all 1,500 images up so that people can look at it open source, so that people can, um, with, with even more trained eyes and maybe people who had yeah. worked there before or, or you know, know something that, that Chris and I don't know, whatever the case may be, that they can use it as, as a data point, you know, as, as to be able to maybe find something that we just don't see. 
for me, I appreciate it on all the different levels that, that, that Chris explained, you know, from the paranormal to the, the, the fine art photography aspect to what he actually documented with this wolf creature. Um, but there may be more to it. Um, and we're just trying to bring it out to the people. Um, and this is hopefully even a great process um, for destigmatizing the subject, you know, that here we are an academic institution that um, presents formal academically minded exhibition, but we're not afraid to go here. Okay. As a matter of fact, we think it's important to go here given the, the, the current uh, state of affairs. Absolutely. Gentlemen, I, I bet we could go on and talk for days about this. I mean, really, I've just got more questions now than I did at the beginning, but we're, <laughs> we're catching up on time. I, I've got some final questions for, for each of you. Uh, Chris, I've got two, though, like, and, and this is the obvious one that's been at the tip of my tongue the entire time. What do you genuinely believe is going on at this place? And secondly, you know, 11 years from when you first stepped foot on the ranch, how has it, how has that experience continued to impact you as a person? That's a good question. I, I, I firmly believe that, um, and this is just going off my experiences, what I experienced on the property, uh, what I found on the property. I really believe that the ancient native uh, ground areas to be hollowed grounds, basically like a sacred land. And, um, you know, document that with all the artifacts and talking to locals and talk and not just the artifacts, but there's certain areas on the property that are unique in itself. And, and some that I photographed and some of the areas are off the property, not like on Skinwalker Ranch, but you have to, in order to, to figure things out, I kind of pushed the envelope and pushed out further than what I was normally supposedly supposed to protect. I wanted to really figure out, you know, I was out there all the time. I wanted to really figure out what was going on. And I'm not saying my answer is right. I'm just saying it's a piece of the puzzle because I really believe there's a lot more stuff going out there. I think that I think the combination of the um, the Indian artifact history, which is the foundation of the property, along with the natural radiation that's occurring out there for whatever reason that I didn't, I didn't know about, is somehow that perfect combination is creating this portal or whatever else you want to call it. Maybe that that type of energy, um, and people are stumbling stumbling into it, you know. And um, it definitely helped me evolve. Uh, through my creative processes, through photography, but also, you know, I taught myself graphic design while I was out there. I did a whole bunch of stuff where I felt like I was being tapped. I was tapping into a different frequency out there, you know, and I feel that my time out there has helped elevate my frequency and, and helped me vibrate on a different level than maybe other people. Not, not saying that, that it's like, I'm better than you, but I'm saying that my time there definitely evolved me spiritually on a different level where I see things a little bit differently, you know, and, um, I'm able to connect with people very easily, I think, from my time out there, you know, and um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of things of the ranch. And, you know, the, the mystery is still going out there, you know, but I really believe in the Native American. Uh, and that's nothing that's new. It's pretty openly talked about. But I think that it's important, very important, more so than we think. I think there's a deep connection with Native Americans, that history, that culture. And let's say UFOs, you know, let's just say let's just pretend that UFOs were coming to Earth for whatever reason, they most likely want to engage with the species of humans that have a deep connection with the earth, the universe, and their culture. And that would be Native Americans. They believe in the universe. They believe in everything, the, the connection of, all, of, of everything. And I think that's important, you know, to, to document that and to talk about that. Definitely. To Ross, for, for people who, one, 
think they have an idea of what's going on and think they have an idea of what the ranch is really like. And for those that have no clue what they're looking at, but they just want to check this out because it's something to do. What do you hope the, the big takeaway is for people who are outside observers getting a chance to be intimate in a way that, you know, they're not physically there, but they could see it through the eyes of somebody that was. Yeah. Um, I, I hope that the big takeaway will be to um, keep, keep an open mind, you know, and that's, that's really what I think people should, should um, take away from, from all our objects, because that's really what, what art is, is made. It, it's made as kind of an extension of our, you know, um, uh, personal um, uh, uh, interactions and, and, and connection. You know, it's it, it's a way where we can express ourselves in a way where words can fail or there, there are no words to say something. There are no actions. And so we often lean on creative um, processes in order to fill in those blanks. And so. I, I really hope that people will come there and, and come there with an open mind, but really take, take what you want from it. Um, uh, because um, there are, we, we've organized it in such a way where there are numerous entry points. And um, that's very difficult to achieve in, in an exhibition or in any kind of endeavor, because there's always a kind of um, by necessity when you organize, whether it's an exhibition or, you know, uh, uh, or even when you're publishing a book or something, there's always a type of dogmatic approach. You're you're trying to step by step um, force people to navigate or traverse things a certain way. And we spend a lot of time definitely um, narrowing down the selection and coming up with these sections. But we hope we did it in such a way where you're not bound by those um, that you can, at the end of the day, make up your own section. Um, maybe um, come to a different uh, conclusion based on your life's experiences or or, or di- different encounters. That's okay. That's that's what art is all about. Most importantly, how can people check it out? Well, they can go to www.artgallery.umd.edu. Um, on the homepage, you'll be able to um, click on the um, the homepage. There's a beautiful. Actually, it's the storm image we used as as kind of the main image for the exhibition. And um, that that will take you to a set of instructions to be able to view it online. And folks, I'm going to go ahead and include all this and more in today's show notes. Uh, Gentlemen, it's been an absolute privilege. Thank you for answering all my questions and everything else. Uh, Chris, if people want to check out more of your stuff and connect with you online, how could they do so? Uh, Mostly I interact with people on Twitter. If people have like questions, I'll I'll do my best to answer what I I can. So uh, Chris Bartell, SWR at Twitter. I also have an Instagram page, uh, Christopher.Bartell, where I post, you know, images of my life, but also the ranch as well. People can contact me there. I also do a free graphic design service for veterans-based companies if they need uh, logos or T-shirt designs so that people can connect with me there as well. So, Perfect. Uh, guys, th- thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute blast, sincerely. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, Renzo. Thank you for having us. 
Thank Folks, you but before before we go, it costs you nothing, but it means everything to me. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play. You know how the amazing internet works. It lets people know about the conversations we're having here, the um, amazing topics that we're able to discuss openly and take our time really jumping into, and it helps us get in those trending charts. So please take two minutes out of your day and let people know that you'll enjoy this and that they might get a kick out of it too. As always, I'm Remster W. Martinez. Be safe, be good. Good night. I'll talk to you later. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Like the Chris Spangle Show, Liberty Explained, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Freedom Strips with Keaton Tucker, On the Run with Rimzo Martinez, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, Upward Libertarian Activism, and now hear this. Tune in now and we're going to help you sound smarter when talking with your friends. 